0: Yeah. Let me try my people
1: everybody, everybody, everybody. It is Monday. You know what that means? Yes, it is another episode of Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. It is Monday, April 25th, 2022. And this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts from our own backyards and from across the country. You can join us at the end of the week, too, for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state national politics. And this coming Wednesday, you've asked for it. Here it is, the Wednesday show with Cyril Micheleko is back. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier Times, and the Intelligencer. He is also the editor in chief of the Bucks County Beacon, which is setting Bucks County on fire right now. Cyril joins me once again to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash Press to support the show. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel. If you're not there already, smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show and hit that notification bell. So, you know, every time that we go live, because now with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, who the hell knows what's going to happen next, right? (laughs) We get a little break from that now and talk union organizing tonight. You can also join our Discord server. Info on that is in tonight's show notes. And for more PA progressive talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at nine PM Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your tw- your streams. Rick is there. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you absolutely have to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. I don't know where you've been sleeping under which rock. If you have not checked it out, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at at the night caucus. That's at the night caucus on Twitter and subscribe to their podcast on anchor Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts and attention, all you gamers out there, the game in that's with two ends. The game in is a Quaker town based black family owned gaming store. They're friends of the show and they've got everything from retro n 64s the latest consoles, video games, collectibles, action figures, Funko pops, literally walls of Funko pops and kids get discounts with A's on the report card. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them at Twitter at, at TheGameIn. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. Special shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song DayMan. That's with two Ns at Song DayMan on Twitter. And you've heard it, yes, last week we made the announcement. Uh, check out the Raging Chicken Community Fund. Look, if you want to help us end the domination of right-wing money, tipping the scales to the extreme on our school boards and in our communities, well, look, we've made that easy. Simply drop a donation to the Raging Chicken Community Fund at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Help us support community organizing and school board candidates that our communities and our children deserve. Ah, now there's the big exhale, because tonight on today's show, I welcome uh, Daisy Pickin to the show, and we're going to be talking about her book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. On the Line is a first-person account of a five-year campaign to unionize the industrial laundry factories in Phoenix, Arizona. This is a book for every current or current or future union organizer or anyone who joins the long haul struggle for justice and solidarity. And as I've said to anyone who is willing to listen on any platform (laughs) on the line is a heartbreaking, hopeful, truthful, truthful, complicated and beautiful book. Daisy Picken has spent more than 20 years as a community and union organizer, working first in support of garment workers around the world, and then for U.S. labor unions organizing industrial laundry workers. Her essays have been awarded the Montana Prize, the Disquiet Literary Prize, the New Millennium Award, and the Monique Wittig Writers' Scholarship. She grew up in rural Ohio and received an MFA from the University of Arizona. Picken lives and writes in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she works as an organizer with an offshoot of the Union Unite. Find her at daisypitkin.net and follow her on Twitter at at Daisy Pitkin. Welcome to the show, Daisy.
0: Hi, thanks for having me on, Kevin. Really happy to be uh,
1: here. I am so thrilled. Uh, I, I've i been watching the uh, um, breakneck speed by which you have been doing uh, <laughs> um, book signings and shows. <laughs> and I am, I, I'm, I'm saying personally, I'm absolutely thrilled um, to see your book getting the kind of attention it is because it is so deserving of it. Believe me.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's been really fun to see people interact with a book and to see it get such a, a friendly reception. I'm happy to, happy to be out there kind of talking about it. It's a funny thing to have a book in the world because I, I've said this a couple of times, but it feels like such a closed system of thinking. It's like this artifact that's now exists in the world And my favorite thing about that is getting to talk with people about it because, you know, of course, as like a thinker and an organizer, my my thoughts about my own ideas are constantly changing and evolving. And it kind of freaked me out at first to have this book exist in the (laughs) world. It's like, here's a document of my thinking. But talking to people about it, I get to continue thinking, which feels really important to me.
1: Yeah, and especially as, like, a union organizer, like, okay, you know, now this is your contract, (laughs) so (laughs) you're going to be held accountable to the words. years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, 100%. Um, Well, listen, before I – there's so much that I want to get to tonight, but I I thought, you know – this focuses around the story, at least I guess the origins of the, the story begins back in 2003 when you're working in Phoenix, Arizona, organizing around this kind of these industrial laundries. And, you know, I have to say um, back in 1999 up to about 2002, I used to live in D.C. and that was right during the Explosion of the global justice movement. You had the you know battle in Seattle, struggles against the IMF and the World Bank, and uh, we had done a lot of working. We were organizing our own union as adjunct faculty members at George Washington University, and a lot of my students and a lot of the students that um, were in D.C. at the time, um, I, who I'm still in touch with today, uh, went on to have similar kinds of uh, kind of trajectories that you did. Ended up in the labor movement, where it kind of built those connections there. Um, And so a lot of what you had there was, you know, really resonated with that experience and felt at the same time so present to where we are today. Um, So let me ask you, so what got you to the point where you're saying, okay, you know, almost we're almost like 20 years out from that now. What what made you want to come back to this and tell this story um, in this book?
0: You know, I think it's interesting that you reference that kind of anti-globalization movement in the late 90s and early 2000s, because that was my experience. I was in Seattle. I was working for United, you know, not working for them, but there was a United Students Against Sweatshop chapter on my campus. And I got really involved in anti-sweatshop campaigns, you know, mainly concerning the conditions under which college apparel was made and started understanding power in a different way around that time, because I was doing some organizing where it felt like Students should have and did have some power. We were the ones who were going to buy college apparel or not. Right. Um, And I was in Seattle. I after college, I started working for a short time for a group called the Campaign for Global Justice um, or for the Alliance for Global Justice and an organization called the Campaign for Labor Rights, which was, um, you know, working with grassroots activists across the U.S. to show up and show solidarity for workers internationally who were producing garments that were sold in the U.S. So, like, for example, garment workers in Guatemala in a factory called Chemtex went on strike because they were Mm -hmm. trying to form a union and um, they were facing a lot of oppression and violence, quite frankly, and they made denim that got sold at Gap. So we had, you know, I helped to coordinate activists across the U.S. to show up at Gap um you know stores and hand out informational leaflets to support these workers in Guatemala so that that's kind of where i come from too those um those anti globalization kind of movements and networks and i felt you know that that there was a real movement there there was a moment that at least as a young very young person at that time i was in my late teens and early 20s i really believed that something was about to change, working in those movements. And there was a lot of heartbreak that I know I felt, and I think others of, of my fellow activists and organizers at that time felt when that movement kind of came apart after 9-11 and 9-11. sort of refocused its energy into kind of an anti-war movement because it was absolutely necessity to resist that war. right? But that kind of political heartbreak that I felt was so hard to describe. I didn't know um like what to do with those feelings. <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah, and I think in this there's some of that in this book as well. I mean on the line is about some political heartbreak that happens at the end of the book, and I was really burned out um and ill after organizing kind of in a very frenetic nonstop, not very responsible to myself kind of way for years and years. And then there was, you know, a lot of strife internally in the union. And I left the labor movement for a time and I felt that same kind of heartbreak. So this echo that you're talking about, like (laughs) it's a real echo in my life. There was sort of a second heartbreak that happened. And it took me a couple of years to even consider writing about it. I thought I just need to walk away from this and not think about it. But I couldn't stop thinking about it because there's something really um, crucial, vitally important about labor organizing. Right. And I first of all, I had I had to come back. I'm organizing again now. But also, I think the time away from the labor movement created enough space for me to really reflect and think about what we were doing and why it was so hard, why it shouldn't be as hard as it is. And also to examine the the role of a staff organizer on a campaign yeah. in a way that felt important to me. That was a long answer to your question.
1: <laughs> no, no. Look, I mean, a wonderful, I mean, when you talk about that heartbreak, I felt that too as well. When you're the organizing, um, you know, around the global justice movement. I remember we were going, we were heading into, we were organizing, we had our We were the Ya Madonna Bastas. We were going to be in a support kind of role. We were going to bring water. um, We had some senior citizens that were part of our group. So we were going to, we redid all of Madonna's songs to talk about global justice, right? That was going to be our support role and all that. that. That's
0: amazing. Oh my
1: God. It was. It was amazing. We had the like the cowboy hat, hard hat, never. It was I, I could. Go I hope on you
0: have video of that.
1: <laughs> I have some of it somewhere. I do. It's like it was. It was amazing. But you know, it was like we're organizing for this, and we had learned so much just in a very short period of time. And just like this is the other thing you describe in the book is you get this, so much happens in such a small like a short period of time, but feels like you know months and years. And that was happening around like in DC at that time too, as well. And then, I mean, literally I lived in DC and we were ready to go for the fall, um, the fall protests and nine 11 happens yep. and it was, it just wrecked us. Yep. Um, and there were people that wanted to will themselves through, this is what I saw echoed in your book too as well. Like, no, just put that aside, keep on going. I'm like, how can you possibly keep on going after that? Yeah. Right, I yeah. mean, and so, anyways, that's a that's a long response to your answer, you know, too, as well. But so, let me let me get to that that part about that heartbreak because you know, I think that has been so much about the, um, that ha- has been my experience in the labor movement for for a long time too. That these are integral to what you even kind of develop in these bounds of sol- you know, talking about solidarity building and when you talk about the role of staff organizer, um, but even just in terms of how what is it that keeps people together and. And your second chapter, you, you have these three moments that at least they stuck out to me. You have this moment when it's your first time telling the story to organizers about the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire. Um, and you get kind of disciplined for your response <laughs> right in this moment. And then the next moment was in that same chapter where you you introduce us to um, um, Clara Lemmick's. Lemlicks, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, And this story around, you know, her standing up and calling the general strike and everybody's yay. And her story plays out in your book. And then you have Alma at the close out that chapter with her question that is like the burning question, it seems to me through everything is like, what drives a person to fight? Right. And so could you talk us through like that kind of setup and those what you're doing with these layers in that chapter and that kind of play out throughout the rest of the book?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started writing the book, I didn't really know what I was doing with these pieces. There's like this history piece about the the uprising of the 20,000 and Clara Lemlich, who is credited with sort of sparking that movement. And then the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which happened about 13 months later. And those were really important Um, occurrences in the history of the union that I worked for. And as a young organizer, I was taught to tell those stories. You know, you have a first organizing committee meeting, and you tell the history of the union. And those two stories were integral to Unite. That's the name of the, the union that I worked for. Really important to Unite's kind of idea of itself. It's sort of own mythos about its importance and its long-standingness and its role in the very rich history of labor organizing and resistance in this country and so I was taught to tell that story and I told it like other organizers in the union kind of ritualistically over and over Mm um and I in the book I sort of tease out some interesting things about the telling and retelling of that story. And part of what I find is that, you know, the story I was taught to tell is that Clara Lemlick, this anonymous wisp of a girl, oh. as she was um, later reported to be, was kind of by chance or dumb luck, or maybe some sort of irreplicable moment of courage was hoisted onto the stage in 1909 and called for a general strike. And the next day, 20,000 people followed her into the street. And I told the story in that way because I was taught to tell the story in that way. And, you know, over time, I started thinking, what, like, what does it mean for me to stand in front of a group of workers who are making a decision to have a fight to join our union and tell that story? Like, is it supposed to inspire people? Did the, are they supposed to imagine themselves as Claire Lemlick, like, I'm going to get up on a stage and spark a general strike? I don't think so. I don't I don't think it works that way in telling that story. I don't think, I mean, it, practically, if I stood up in front of a bunch of strangers and called for a general strike, would people follow me <laughs> into the streets? <laughs> I don't think right. so. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and of course, it didn't really happen that way, right? Like, Claire Lemlich. <laughs> was an organizer. She was a worker leader. And she, you know, in the years before that moment, spent day after day organizing strike committees at almost 500 shops across New York. And on that day, when she was hoisted up onto the stage, everyone there knew who she was. And they knew that she was going to call for a strike. So it was planned. It was part of a very clever, methodical, Plan that the workers themselves had developed, and we strip that story in in the telling of it from we we decontextualize it from the very hard work of organizing, which Clara did very well, which is why the strike was successful by and large, right? So I feel like I put that story at the beginning of the book because the story the book itself is a story about the very hard work of organizing. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be decontextualized from the grind that is organizing, organizing—the like boring, com- like repetitive tasks of making the leaflet copies, debriefing at 10 PM, fixing the wall charts, um, driving around in circles, trying to visit your coworkers, setting chairs up for the meeting and then cleaning up after the meeting. And I think it's twinned with that moment in the book, where Alma, who's really the main hero of the book, um, where she asks that question at the training, like, what is it that drives some people to fight? Like, why am I so willing to fight, is what she was asking. And some of my coworkers are too afraid. Why? And I, I think it's because that the daily grind work of organizing that Alma was really willing to do and did a lot of, right? That's where the union is built that is what drives people to fight. It's like, it's not those more cinematic moments where Clara Lendlick is standing on the stage or, um, you know, Norma Ray is holding up the union sign. The unions are built in those moments. It's built in the time that people put in with each other to trust each other and care about each other and form solidarity with each other. Right. Um, and then witnessing their own capacity to do that work changes them. There's like, it's a transformative process. Um, so to me, that's what those two pieces are are doing together in the book. Um, and that's why they yeah, come together and- in that second chapter in that way.
1: Yeah, and I just think in such a and in such a way that you you know find yourself you know again I don't want to uh sp- like no spoilers here for the remainder of the book here because I want people to buy this book and read this book because it's freaking amazing. But um is you know that question and the questions that I at least that I felt in my reading of this is, was kind of brought back throughout the book and we're kind of revisiting these questions um, mm-hmm. continuously. And I like what you say there too about the grind, right? It's just the, the daily work. And I find it so interesting that, you know, I, I recall hearing that story in the way that you first told it, right? I mean, about uh, Clara Lemlich that, or, this is, this is who she was. She stood up there and everyone went out. It's the same way that we're asked to kind of think about Rosa Parks. It's yes. the same way that we're asked to think about any kind of major kind of social transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's, what's lost in that is precisely the, the kind of, just the skills the very, the, you know, the skills and the baseline knowledges of what it actually means to organize. Yeah. And, you know, I, I I couldn't help but think, and again, this is, I don't want to get us too far away from the book here, but, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, all the the movement to get like Obama elected to office back in you know, um, for his you know, first time round. Mm-hmm. And there was this big surge and people were out there and mobilizing to get him out there. And then he gave us the Okay, I got this, and everybody went home. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, because we learned that story in history, right? We learned that story that, oh yeah, now that guy, that one person, to go up there, and all the problems are solved. Mm-hmm. When all that kind of the, the, what goes into organizing w- was what really got him even there. Yeah. Um, and so it just seems that this is one of these recurrent histories. But we need to know this story that you're telling if we're going to build power, just like we see these stories that are emerging now and the kind of union organizing that's happening right now.
0: Yeah. I think that's really right I mean the you know movements um, sort of beget power and then other movements as well um and I think the yeah we the movement has to sort of continue to build power and create pressure and hold our heroes accountable right um, and well, our heroes so. should be the people the organizers who The, you know, the worker leaders and, um, you know, in other organizations, other kinds of grassroots leaders who um, end up being held accountable by the movement because they, they come from the movement. Sort of a better pairing than finding a hero and organizing around the hero and then hoisting the hero onto the stage and expect them to remain accountable to a movement that they didn't come from. Um, it seems like an ill-fitting narrative and we can write a better one.
1: Absolutely. Well, and that gets us right to, as you said, who's really the hero of this book. And you have Alma who is um, a worker organizer leader um, that you worked with in Arizona when you're organizing these kind of industrial laundries. Can you give people a little bit of context of, you know, what was the goal here? What are these industrial laundries and how that kind of uh, relationship with Alma kind of, was uh, how it started, what it kind of emerged from that, and why that became such an important um, center to your story.
0: So the union that I worked for, Unite, was kind of a small but very scrappy organizing union, and they were not afraid to take really bold um, experiments and see what could be organized, right? And so this was the early 2000s, and Unite Uh, decided that they were going to see what it would take to organize workers in the industrial laundry industry in a red state. Could it be done? And they looked at Phoenix, Arizona, which, um, you know, is a place where possibly the greatest number of odds were stacked against this organizing project because it was a deep red city in a deep red right to work state. We're talking Joe Arpaio country where Joe Arpaio right. is the sheriff of Maricopa County in which Phoenix resides. And he and his posse, um, he called him his posse, literally posse, uh, you know, we're roaming the streets of Phoenix looking for people who they thought might be undocumented and demanding papers from them and arresting them. Um, it was a really inhospitable place for immigrant workers and purposefully inhospitable, Um, hostile, I think is probably a better word. And workers at industrial laundries at that time were by and large immigrant workers from Mexico and Central America um, and were women. So sort of layers and intersections of vulnerability um, and industrial laundries are also not the easiest places to organize for a whole other slew of reasons. But one of them being that they tend to be invisible. People don't know Mm -hmm. that they exist, (laughs) but they do. In every city and major community in this country, there are massive factories full of hot, heavy industrial equipment where hundreds of workers work uh, washing linens that come from hotels and hospitals and restaurants. And Alma worked in one of these factories UNITE's project was to see if we could get to majority union density in this industry in Phoenix, um, and they sent a team of young organizers there. I was one of them, and Alma was the first, her, the first worker I met in that those you know the entire five years it took to campaign at these laundries, and it's because her husband was the cousin of a shop steward at a union laundry. Um, so we kind of through the grapevine, found out that there's this person who works at this industrial laundry. So it was our first house visit in that phase of the campaign where we're doing everything very secretly because we don't want to trigger an anti-union response from the employer before we're able to talk to a majority of the workers. And so Alma was our first contact there. And from, you know, within 10 minutes, I could tell that <laughs> she was going to lead this movement. And she did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she did. And then so and in that one of the things that got, I mean, what was that like learning what that job actually entailed? I remember and when I was reading that section, I grew up in Utica, New York and like, kind of central New York. And there's this area along this kind of arterials like Route 12 that runs through the city. And uh, there's like Utica cutlery. The Utica cutlery, I mean, again, is one of these industries, one of the many industries that just kind of left, that was kind of first shipped down south and then it was shipped overseas right, as the industrial base crumbled like within Utica. But there was these series of factories along Route 12 right next to that, the cutlery. And we all thought, you know, kind of growing up there, they were just all abandoned. And then one day we're driving on the other side of the of the kind of the main road and down the, the side street that ran on the other side of those factories. And we found out all these garage doors were wide open. Right. And that's what it was. It was this massive industrial laundry right in this building that looked like, you know, it was abandoned. Yeah. And that was like and as you were describing what that work was, I was coming back. Like, this is what. And it was too as well. It was like it was almost all kind of like uh, uh, immigrants who were working there, Vietnamese immigrants, uh, kind of Latino immigrants. And to see that and then that learning from your book about just the kind of hazards, what that actually meant to organize inside that shop and why it was so necessary. Can you take us into that a little bit about what that work entailed?
0: Yeah, I think that's that was one of my main goals in writing the book was to, to be able to talk about the health and safety hazards that exist inside these plants, because, you know, there are many, there hundreds of thousands of workers who work in them. And we just don't know about it. And the conditions in modern America, modern US society happening every in every city across the country, it's wild. But, you know, I learned I started learning about it in that first house visit with Alma when she described her work. And Alma works in the very first department in an industrial laundry, <clears throat> which is called Soil Sort. And her laundry washed linens from hospitals. So the linen comes in on these big 18-wheeler trucks and gets pushed off on these rolling bins into the end of the factory. <clears throat> and they get the bins get picked up and dumped onto a conveyor belt. And Alma and her co-workers in this department, Soil Sort, it's their job to, as the pounds, I mean, it's hundreds of pounds of linen in these kind of bundles, comes down a conveyor belt. They have to pull it apart very quickly and sort it, like sheets into one bin, hospital gowns into another bin, washcloths into another bin, pillowcases, another bin. So, the, you know, the linen is coming down this conveyor belt and they're working very quickly, kind of flicking their hands back and forth, sorting linen. And you can imagine what comes tangled in the sheets that come from a hospital or a surgical mm-hmm. center. I mean, all of the bodily fluids that they came into contact with, urine, vomit, feces, fluids, bags, surgical tools left tangled in the sheets. They were in contact with syringes, scalpels, um, sometimes body parts and pieces of flesh left over from surgeries. And I'm sorry to be so gross about it, but
1: no, no, this is
0: the daily reality of yep. many thousands of workers. And, you know, in almost factory, as in a lot of non-union laundries, the personal protective equipment given to workers, especially in that department is not up to standard their gloves, you know, in almost factory, they had to wash and reuse the gloves that they were using to touch this linen. Sometimes the coating on them would get cracked and that exposed their skin touching this biohazardous um, and chemical filled linen. Um, you know, they didn't have all the time the proper gowns and masks that they needed. Um, and that's just in one department. You know, only I learned in subsequent house visits with workers in other departments about the the dangers that exist, very real dangers on the hot and heavy machinery that they're using in other departments of the plant.
1: Well, you know, I was just explaining, I was, I was telling you before the show that I was, I was telling my kids about your book, right? As we were kind of having dinner is, and my son asked the question is like, well, why is it that so many workers got hurt there? Right. What was to get hurt there? And I was explaining first of all, the size of things, right? You're not just talking about, you know, our laundry down the stairs. You're talking about these massive machines. And one of the things that you mentioned here, and again, this was echoing in my head of like our quote unquote, you know, celebration of essential workers uh, throughout COVID and seeing the same things play out there where, The drive to increase the speed of, uh, you know, of the laundry have more process at a time that they would remove safety, like safety features from the different machines um, or wouldn't kind of follow the proper protocols in order to kind of like clear machines when they were stuck. And there were workers that were ending up with, you know, missing limbs, horrible burns um, and death. Right. So, this, you know, it's not just, you know, the I love Lucy version of like a sped up chocolate factory. But here you actually have people that are put in, a, you know, dire situations uh, where their lives are literally on the line and then they're thrown out in the end. And I'm thinking about the story you tell of that the one worker who has the hernia and they denied that he was, uh, you know, that he did that at work. And so he just kind of left to rot
0: yeah. um,
1: on the outside.
0: Yep, Yeah. There were um, some really horrendous injuries that I saw not only in that laundry and almost laundry, but but others. In fact, the book is dedicated to Eliezer Torres Gomez, um, who is a worker who worked for a different company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the company had removed a safety guard um, from a machine that connected sort of where the wet linen comes out of the washer and the water is extracted from it. And then it gets hauled up a conveyor belt into an industrial dryer and a a safety guard had been removed and he um, fell onto the linen and got pulled into the dryer which closes automatically and starts and he died in an industrial dryer a very gruesome terrible death Um, but it's one of several um, just in the last you know two decades that have happened in industrial laundries. They're dangerous places to work. And as you say, when production pressure is high, um, and in places where companies are allowed to raise production pressure without any kind of consultation with workers, if they don't have a union. Um, we see injuries increase. I mean, work, people are working too quickly to be safe. Um, You know, sometimes they turn, in some industrial laundries, I've seen and heard stories of them turning the temperature up on the irons um, to be able to run production through more quickly. And workers on the other end catch linen that come out of hot irons. They're kind of spit out through these rollers that go all across the floor of the factory, and then they're spit out the other side, and people catch and fold them. And there are people who work there who have been catching for so long that their fingertips have been scalded by handling hot linen so quickly. And they don't have fingerprints anymore. There was a, a worker on an organizing campaign um, back in the late two thousands who was having trouble getting her visa renewed because she no longer had fingerprints. <laughs> my God right? Um, yeah. This is it's a reality. One of one of my main goals with writing the book was to tell the story of what goes on in an industrial laundry and why unions are so crucial to workers in that industry. But then also to talk about why it's so hard to form unions right now, the actual years long battle that it took um, because labor laws. Well, are and really I think broken.
1: that, yeah, I was just going to ask you exactly that, that issue. Cause it, here you have, you know, um, you have the story of Alma working with an amazing organizing committee and, and, you know, this is not a story of kind of like, oh, and then a week later, they got a union. Hooray. Yeah. <laughs> it is the picture of what this looks like, given current, you know, it was back then, but also current U.S. labor law and what workers are, you know, in a sense, what workers who are doing one Hell of a job in organizing a union. Want the union? But what they actually have to go through, both in terms of the anti-union campaigns that they're subjected to all throughout the, um, you know, all throughout the organizing campaign, and then what happens afterwards as you're facing all sorts of legal fights against a, you know, labor laws that you know are built for you know the Lochner era, right? Yeah. I mean they really are. So, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to kind of like, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about giving too many spoilers here, but you know, take, can you take us through a little bit into what that struggle looked like and, and what, you know, that process of organizing um, kind of went through and, and how Alma, like, you know, the, the story that, you know, that, well, the, the conversation you have with her over the years, really, um, kind of reflecting on what they were up against in that campaign. Yeah.
0: um, You know, we used a strategy, I was kind of describing it a few minutes ago, where we built an organizing committee um, secretly. And that was really important because we wanted to be able to talk to all of the workers who worked in Alma's Factory before the company could find out that we were talking to them, because we knew that it would trigger a vicious anti-union campaign. And we, you know, believed then, and I still believe now, that People deserve to have, um, you know, they deserve to be able to make a decision about whether or not they're going to join a union free from intimidation from their employer. Um, You know, they already, I think, before the company starts campaigning, there's intimidation just sort of built in to the power dynamic between a boss and Workers. Workers by and large know that their boss is not going to like it if they form a union <laughs> and that's a scary yeah. proposition, right? You know that you're going to be up against a fight. Um, but it's still easier to make the decision before the fight actually starts happening. Right. So we, we built this, this kind of secret committee. Um, and then built a list of all of the co-workers and mm-hmm. almost plant and contact information for all of them. And then over the course of 48 hours, we tried to visit 220 workers in their house over the span of a weekend before the plant supervisor was going to be back in the plant on monday morning <laughs> um, and we did and a majority of the workers signed cards saying that they wanted to form a union and you know there was a there was a time under labor law when that would have been enough workers a majority yep. of them sign union cards and you bring them to the labor board and the labor board says Well, it looks like you have a union. (laughs) And now the company should bargain a contract with you. And that's what should still be happening. But instead now, you know, one of many loopholes, I think, in current labor law that are so big that companies can and do like drive buses through them, um, mostly buses in the form of multi-million dollar anti-union consultants, right? Um, But one of the loopholes is that now a company can say, We want to have an election because we don't believe that people, the majority of the people sign cards or we don't believe that they meant it when they signed cards or, you know, so they can force an election and they almost always do. They almost never voluntarily recognize a union based on cards alone, even though they could still written into labor law that they could. So in almost factory, majority of workers signed union cards. And then Monday morning, the company started campaigning. And we filed for a union election. The NLRB held one actually pretty quickly in this grand scheme of things. The current campaign I'm working on, it's months and months. But on that campaign, yeah. it was three and a half weeks. We just had That's the remarkable. last three and a half weeks. But the company campaigned so hard, they admitted later in court to holding over 200 captive audience meetings during that, two, two, during that three and a half weeks. You know, partway through the anti-union campaign, um, a few days into it, in fact, Alma and her coworkers signed a petition trying to tell the company, listen, we have formed a union. Just leave us alone. Let us vote. Stop your campaigning. Stop your harassment. Stop surveilling us. Stop threatening us. We don't want to hear it, you know. And the idea was that a delegation of them would bring this petition to their bosses. And the delegation grew so big that it ef- that it effectively shut down the plant. They staged a uh, kind of an impromptu work stoppage, and the company was so freaked out they fired Alma and some of her coworkers on the spot, fired them, um, which was a you know that's not legal. I, I was going to that's a problem. But <laughs> you know if, if you're a boss and you want to avoid having a union because you know that it will forever change the balance of power in the workplace and you're used to having all the power. So if you're a boss and you want to continue to have all the power, you want to bust the union. And um, you know, by and large, the greatest penalty that is leveraged against you if you are months and months and months later through a very long legal process through the NLRB, if you're found to have broken labor law, more often than not, what you have to do is put up a posting in the plant it says like we broke the law, and we'll try not to do it again.
1: That's okay. like, I mean, that's that's, that's pretty, pretty severe. severe. I mean, so,
0: it's like it's terrifying. I'm, I'm sure that scares every multi-billion-dollar corporation into not breaking labor law, right? One
1: hundred percent. We're talking like sitting up straight at nighttime, night sweats, whole deal. I know yeah, it's that, that poster stuff
0: of corporate nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's the worst penalty they also had to they had to give alma her job back no spoilers but she you know she went back yep. to the laundry because they broke the law very egregiously anyway the story doesn't end there we won we lost we won we lost we won that's the story
1: um, it's, it's incredible I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible, an incredible story. And, you know, look, I, and this is where I encourage everybody seriously, um, is that, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll spill the beans now is that, you know, kind of in the coming days, we're going to do some, uh, a little bit of giveaway. Uh, so, um, for here at raging chicken, so you can get a chance to kind of, uh, grab one of Daisy's, uh, books on us, oh, that's um, great. but, um, get out. Yeah. just like, I mean, I, any way that we can get, you know, help kind of boost a little with our audience, get you uh, in this, because it's just an incredible, incredible book. Well, listen, I, I know we're running up against it, but I uh, I don't want to leave without talking about the moment that we're in right now, because you know, on the one hand, I hear echoes of exactly of your story, what we're talking about before. And we saw this Amazon victory, which was freaking amazing, yeah. right? We see Chris Smalls kind of like you know, basically getting his due uh, after being called inarticulate and, you know, every other thing that you could be, every other racist dog whistle you could possibly give for that guy. Um, Him and that committee organized that union. But, right, in many ways, you know, there's a cautionary tale in your book, right? And the cautionary tale is like, that's huge. But... The fight is right in front of us now. We're seeing that also now in um, with Starbucks, right? That's getting the recognition and the bargaining for that first contract. Um, so... I, and I don't want to be a, like, you know, like pour water on the fire here, because I think literally um, you see this stuff catching like wildfire. I think earlier today, Baltimore, just like another union Starbucks. Right. Um, you're seeing every single day a new um, kind of union being filed, um, mm-hmm. more workers organizing. Yeah. And now we've got the second the second Amazon warehouse is is going up. Now they're organizing here. They may have an election soon, too, as well. I mean, so we see this, you know, this whirlwind, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um But we also have, you know, so I mean, well, not. how do you gauge that moment, both this kind of absolute excitement, the focus on labor organized like never before, and not the top down business unionism, old white guy comes in and tells you what to say, Mm -hmm. but a bottom up, energized, militant kind of unionism, which for for my money, this is something we've been needing for a long time. Yes. Where do you come down on that?
0: I I think that. You know, this is something I think about in the pages of the book as well, that the kind of, there's a question of internal democracy, not only inside unions themselves, but um, on campaigns. And I think that the groundswell that we're seeing right now, workers organizing themselves and each other in multiple industries in every region across the country, it's something I didn't think that I would see in my lifetime. Like, I'm really deeply moved by it. And I feel incredibly honored to get to support groups of workers as they're going through these fights. Um, And I think that it speaks to what we were talking about earlier about what is it that actually drives people to fight? What is the substance of solidarity that they build together? And I think when we see organizing fights that are led by workers, What they're doing is the work of organizing together and they're building solidarity and trust with each other while they're doing it, you know? And as a staff organizer, you know, I have to sort of make sure that whatever experience and expertise I have, my job is to democratize that, that experience and expertise, whatever skills I have, my job is to get it into the hands and minds of workers who are organizing themselves and each other as quickly as possible, and then to get out of the way so that they can do the work of union building. Um, Because then the momentum that is growing right now really cannot be stopped, right? Because it's their momentum. It's their solidarity. It's their movement. It's their union. It's their contract. Um, And to me, that's the most important thing Right now, Um, you know, one of the organizing committee members that I'm working with here in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago had an analogy that I really like for describing this moment, because we were talking about how it feels like the corporations that we're up against right now, that workers are up against right Mm -hmm. now don't quite understand the momentum that they're facing. And they're pulling from like the same old playbook of anti-union tactics. And it's kind of not working. And in some cases it's actually backfiring. Um, And he said, you know, it's like they're facing this tidal wave and they're standing there squirting at it with water guns. Like everything (laughs) they do just kind of adds a little bit to a force that's coming down on them. Like they really don't understand the nature of what's happening right now and i think that that gives workers who are already discovering their own power even more power
1: yeah you know i i heard this you know one of the stories about uh chris smalls and his original kind of organizing crew and when uh work when the anti-union campaign started really ramping up you know because you know amazon spent 4.3 million dollars or whatever for just to kind of the anti-union camp just Mm -hmm. just like less than a year and you know they said like this outside force is coming in to tell you what to do and they're like you mean chris yeah. <laughs> right they're like, like, that guy mean, like right
0: next to me <laughs> what are you talking <laughs> about? like
1: the guy the guy who tried to get me protective equipment Well, you guys what you mean that outside force yeah. the guy who's feeding me at the bus stop right now <laughs> that guy <laughs> it's and how, how do you break campaign.
0: that you know in the starbucks campaign that you the third party you know anti union <laughs> message doesn't work if the workers are doing the work and organizing themselves. And on the Starbucks campaign, they keep trying to make that stick. You know, they keep trying to say these outside organizers, these, you know, professional rabble rousers. And the workers, I think, are just like, what are you talking about? Like, I learned how to do this from my buddy, Jake, who works at the store down the street. Like he told me what he did in his store and i just did the same thing and now we filed for a union election you know it's like it doesn't it doesn't work because it's not the nature of the campaign yeah
1: right 100 percent. and I, I, I this is what i love about the starbucks campaign too because you're talking about these small store like i mean relatively small workforces right that are unionizing and they see outside forest they're like literally like looking around you like you mean her? You mean like, <laughs> or him, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, which which one's the outside person that I've been working with for two years because they've done a hell of a job hiding it up until now. You yeah, know?
0: like <laughs> who are these invisible, like these ghostly figures you keep talking about haunting our campaign? Right. It doesn't make any sense. 100%. To them. Yeah.
1: One hundred percent. Well, listen, if you wanted to like, leave everybody with a kind of like a kind of thought about kind of the organizing going forward or what people should be paying attention to or um, other than buying your book, which you should do. Right. Here it is. Uh, this is her contract. Remember, <laughs> right? no pressure. Um, what, what would you leave folks with when they're looking at this moment or looking at kind of the story or the takeaways from um, the story that you're telling in your book?
0: I think that, you know, the takeaway and sort of where where I leave things in the book also is, if you are thinking about organizing your own workplace, right now is the time. Right now, there's so much momentum, there's so much solidarity happening, that if that you should do it right now. Um, and there's some organizing resources at the back of the book, <clears throat> so check it out. Um, and you know, start talking to your coworkers about what it would mean to make a change at your workplace. And if you're already a union member, and I know probably a lot of your listeners are, look out for ways to actively support other organizing efforts in your community. You know, labor kin is one of the most powerful forces we have, the kind of solidarity we have even across unions. We've got to be there for each other in these hard, hard fights that we're having right now and that are just really getting started as you said like contract negotiations are next and you know the the fight does not does not end when the votes are counted so
1: get out there and organize folks no time like the present uh ride the wave because they see keep on squirting their squirt guns so right. <laughs> let them at right. it get a
0: surfboard <laughs> well, ride the wave
1: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, if anybody knows anything about kind of union organizing, you know that Daisy Pitkin, uh, this is not the end of her day, <laughs> right? That the organizing and the work goes on before the close of the day. Daisy, I appreciate you taking the time out to spending this time with us tonight coming on. This is the book. Um, absolutely fantastic. On the line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Daisy Pitkin, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Have a good night.
1: All right. Everybody out there and organize, that's your marching orders right now. That's right. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, Don't forget to join us uh, Wednesday. Cyril Micheleko is back for the Wednesday show, and we'll be back for our Friday Politics Roundup. See ya!